Good evening. Welcome to worship. Uh, if you are uh, here at Savior for the first time, a special warm welcome to you. I know it feels awkward visiting a church. <laughs> I always feel a little out of place when I do. So I hope you feel a warm welcome. Uh, Savior has that, we think, and we'd love for you to feel that tonight. But we're here for the Lord. Would you please stand so we can worship him together? Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. Praying together, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. 
Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. 
many of you have been anxious this week about something? It should probably be just about everybody. This is a great prayer. Grant us, Lord, not to be too anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we're placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that will endure. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, for now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. Mary Poplin, a retired uh, professor of education at Claremont Graduate School, had a dream when she was 41. She tells about it in Christianity Today. She says, I considered myself wildly progressive. Authors like the feminist neo-pagan Starhawk were among my favorites. I would dabble in workshops where we bent spoons and practiced hypnosis on each other while the braver ones tried walking on coals. Okay. In late November that year, I had an unshakable dream. I was in a line of people. So long, I could see neither the beginning nor the end. And we were dressed in gray robes, marching ahead very slowly. Suddenly, we reached an area where a yellow light was emerging. And as we approached it, I saw the scene of the Last Supper, which I recognized from Sunday school. And the disciples were eating and drinking and talking to one another, and Jesus was not at the table with them, but standing up ahead. And I realized, oh, we're in like a reception line. And when it was my turn and I got to Jesus and looked into his eyes, I grasped immediately that every cell in my body was filled with filth. And weeping, I fell at his feet. We humans have a problem. God is utterly and unutterably holy. And we are not. So when we actually encounter God, the real God, as Mary Poplin did in that dream, we run into that truth, that soul-shaking reality. You can trace this person after person through history, uh, Simon Peter, a rough commercial fisherman at the time of Jesus, he's at work. Jesus does a miracle revealing the holy power of God. And how does he respond? I'm so impressed. No. He falls on his knees and goes, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He knows this doesn't belong together. God is holy. And we're not. So how do you and I deal with that? Today, as Americans, we see, on average, five to 10,000 ads a day. The stats that I was Googling online were saying 10,000, and I couldn't quite believe it, so I say five to 10. <laughs> <laughs> and they tell us, those ads do, things like this, and you can try to match the slogan to the brand, do what tastes right, drive your ambition, it's my way, just do it. And so we are all conditioned with the brilliance of an expense that goes into advertising, right? These people aren't dumb. 
So we are all conditioned to feel like what life is really ultimately about is about me expressing and fulfilling my desires. That's where the ultimate life is lived. That's what will bring me happiness. And so if we believe in God as an American, we kind of believe that God must be there to help me with that. But the real God, when we get up there in the line and meet the real God, is so different from any possible God we could imagine. He is utterly different from everything he has made. And one way the real God is completely different from us is this. He is moral purity itself. A.W. Tozier, you knew I was going to mention him. (laughs) Holy is the way God is. To be holy, God does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than what it is. The Bible says God is too pure to behold evil. So it is no use us trying to tell God, well, you know, there is some gray in that situation. The real God sits in judgment on sin. He does not grade on a curve. God's holiness so defines him that it's actually used as his name. You'll often see in the Bible that God is called the Holy One. And Isaiah calls him the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. So if we are interested in this real God, every one of us must face this fact that God is holy, and I am not. And how do we deal with that? Well, tonight I want to look at a couple popular approaches that people take. And these two strategies, I guess you would say, for dealing with this mismatch, this canyon. The first is live with it. Live with it. We are all so used to the unholy, so it is easy to just throw up our hands and just go, you know what, it's not that big a deal. Everybody does this now. Like, everybody sleeps together before marriages. That's the way people feel in churches. Nobody's thinking... In the words of Hebrews, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. We just live with it. When I was in publishing, Christian organizations would place ads in our magazines, emails, websites, and so on. And we knew some of these Christian orgs are going to place ads with us. We are going to run them. They are going to make money from those ads, and then they are never going to pay us. And... We just learned to live with it. We wrote into the budget every year a certain amount of bad debt, which I always thought should have been called bad faith or bad character. And these are Christian organizations. We all just live with it. And so surrounded by so much unholiness, as we all are, it is really easy for us to just think, well, you know, everybody does it, and we just kind of excuse things in our life. Uh... If you travel south on, on Main Street um, in the block north of the tracks, uh, you'll know this situation well, but my friend was there, and he was backed up behind this long line of cars 
at the train, right? And what he wanted to do was actually turn left on front by Starbucks there. So he thought, I don't know why I'm sitting here behind all these cars. So he just drove across the center line into the other lane. Nobody was coming because, hey, the train was blocking them all. Drove down to the, to the end of the light and turned left and onto front. Everything was going great, and then the cop pulled him over. <laughs> he rolls down his window, and he tells the cop, look, everybody does that. The cop said, mm-hmm, hands him a ticket. <laughs> everybody does that is not going to cut it with a holy God. When Isaiah is probably 19, 22, something like that, it was in the year King Isaiah died, he writes, which is huge news in his world. It's like Queen Elizabeth died. It's big. But it is nothing compared to this. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The ceilings in the temple are almost 40 feet high. So he's saying God utterly fills this space. And attending him were mighty seraphim, a word used in the Old Testament only here. These creatures in heaven that stand the closest to God, and they're so unusual. Each has six wings, and with two, they cover their faces because God is too holy to look upon. It'd be like us trying to stare at the sun. You can't do it. And they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. It's an earthquake. And the entire building was filled with smoke. And before a God like that, are we really going to go, ah, you know, I've kind of learned to live with it because everybody does it. No, I'll tell you what we say when we encounter that God. Doomed. I am unholy. I am a man of filthy lips, and I live among a people of filthy lips. Live with it is not going to cut it. So believers have sometimes pivoted to a second strategy toward holiness. I call focus on the outward. Focus on the outward. Karen and I went to a, a friend's wedding down in Indiana, and um, it was at a small church there. And we walked up from the parking lot to the front door. And above the front door, there was this wooden sign, hand-lettered, with various expectations that the church had. And so we stood there, Karen and I, and, and read it. So the first one was, women may not cut their hair. And I looked over at Karen, and she had short-cut hair. I was like, oops. Women may not wear men's clothes. This was July, and she was wearing shorts. I said, whoop. Women may not wear jewelry or makeup. Uh, uh, we are in deep trouble. <laughs> now, most churches don't go that far. Okay. But almost every church has an outward expectation that defines what it would look like to be holy. And maybe it's how you dress. Maybe it's whether you bring a Bible to church. Maybe it's whether that Bible is in a Bible case, you know. <laughs> your bumper sticker on your car. What kind of car? All that kind of stuff. And here's why this strategy is super popular. Because not only is it really abundantly clear 
who's holy and who's not, right? But it is so much easier for you and me to change the outward than it is to change the inward. Holy cow. In Jesus' day, believers in God focused on their outward thing was largely around food, eating kosher. And so in our gospel reading tonight, Jesus calls the crowd to him and says, listen and understand this. What goes into somebody's mouth doesn't defile them. But what comes out of the mouth does. And he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth just goes into the stomach, out of the body. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. You know what? Focusing on the outward to make ourselves holy is really, relatively speaking, easy. But focusing on the real work of holiness inside, that's really tough. That is hidden. It is hard. In my experience, it is slow. I stumble a lot. It means changing how I think. It means changing how I react. That is not easy. But a holy God is not going to look at the outside and go, looks great. God has MRI vision. And he sees right into us and says, hey, what about that over there? That really looks like a rage that is going to incinerate the person around you. Yeah, he sees that kind of stuff. So friends, whether you and I try to just live with it or we focus on the outward, we're just left with this unbearable reality that God is holy. And we're not. How can we ever become holy enough for a God like that? Well, let's see what happened when Isaiah cried out, I'm doomed. Isaiah 6 and verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he touched my lips with it. And he said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, and your sins are forgiven. The solution must come from God. It's got to come from his altar. It's not coming from us. This is what Mary Poplin saw also in her dream as she was standing there in her gray robe looking into the eyes of Jesus and grasping, every cell in my body is filled with filth. Then Jesus reached over and touched my shoulders and I suddenly felt perfect peace. The solution must come from God. Isaiah later in his life sees this, chapter 57. This is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I've created. I've seen their ways, but I will heal them says the Lord. The God who judges everything that is unholy also provides the way to clean us, to heal us, 
to make us, can we believe it, holy. God comes in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And on that hardwood altar of his execution, his hot burning tears become the hot burning coals that cleanse us who look on him in faith. The Bible says we have been sanctified, meaning we've been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Tozier's words, we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. We must take refuge from God in God. So I have a question for you this evening. Is there something you need to confess to a holy God? Is there an unholiness that you need to hide inside the wounds of Christ? The God whose name is holy says to you, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit. I've seen their ways and I will heal them. Now imagine what will happen tonight if all of us here come with contrite hearts to a holy God. I'll tell you uh, what I think. I think that there will be a burst of gratitude released where we just want to live for God even more. He who's been forgiven much loves much. And then we want to just say to him, Lord, I'm utterly at your disposal. I'm just so thankful. And then we enter into this fresh reality of the Christian life where we've been made holy, yes, through Christ, praise the Lord, and we're becoming holy. Paul says you're saints, and he says you're called to be saints. We're there, accepted in God, by God in Christ, and we're becoming ever more holy, meaning more and more of us is at the disposal of God. One time I was at a, uh, conference, and I was serving as a, a prayer minister there. So I was standing at the side of the room, and at the end of the session, uh, anyone who would like prayer could come over. So a person came over for prayer. I guess she was in her 30s, maybe. Um, and she just said, you know, I really want to commit m- more of myself to the Lord. I want to really commit myself utterly to God. So rather than pray that for her, I said, well, why don't you pray that? And I'll pray with you. And, and then I'd be happy to pray for you. So she began praying, and this is hard to describe, but I'll tell you how it came across to me. It was a prayer of such utter consecration as I have never heard. It was abject. It was, God, I give you everything. I give you my relationships. I give you my present. I give you my future. I give you my career. I give you my money. I give you my hopes. It's all yours. And I'm telling you that the near and present power of God was there. Truly remarkable. And when she left, I I went back to my seat and I thought, I have just witnessed what the Bible calls the beauty of holiness. Amen.